0: Well, if you do have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Samuel, and so either turn there with me in a physical copy or turn on your phone, and while you're turning there, let me just say it is a joy and privilege to be here to preach. Uh, This week, I got a chance to preach uh, a sermon in a conference on sorrow and suffering, which was hard to do when the Georgia Bulldogs had just won the national championship, so um, still floating on cloud nine after that win. I know there's some Florida Gator fans in here probably, and what a rough time to be a Florida Gator fan. I do not feel sorry for you at all, though. Uh, can't, can't stand Florida. So, um, But it is a joy to be here and to open uh, God's Word with God's people and to open a text like this. Uh, again, we'll be looking at the story of David and Goliath, which uh, is a familiar story. Likely, whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or you're maybe here this morning just checking out Christian things, uh, the, the David and uh, Goliath story is so well-known in our culture. It's obviously used to rally sports teams, you know, teams like ACC football teams and to rally the underdogs. But because it's a familiar story, I think it sometimes it can be misunderstood. You know, David and Goliath is often taught as primarily about you and how you can dare to be a David or a prosperity sermon where you, and again, I want to emphasize you can defeat the giants in your life. However, as with all the scriptures, this text is primarily about the glory of God. In fact, this text is more about a big God than a big you. But since we serve a big God, and maybe even better than that, since we have been loved by God, we can have courageous faith. Now, this is a true story, and I want to emphasize that it is a true story. I I grew up in a Christian home, and so I've seen so many cartoons on David and Goliath. It's hard not to think about the story through that lens. But this is a true story, a story that centers on a spirit-anointed king who fights for his people precisely because they cannot and do not save themselves nor face down the giants in their lives. And so for this reason, when we come to a text like this, I do think we should more quickly identify with the Israelite soldiers who were on the sideline than we should identify with David. And as we do this morning, we will see in this text, we will see echoes of Genesis 3.15 and that ongoing war between the serpent from eden and the woman who would give birth to someone who would crush that serpent's head we will see faith in this story we will see courage we will see the weak shaming the strong we will see the humble shaming the proud and we certainly will see zeal for the glory of god this morning and i would argue as with all the old testament we will get a glimpse of our christ You know, it's said that the great reformer Martin Luther wrote that wonderful hymn, that hymn based upon Psalm 46, "A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that he wrote that during the plague. It's reported that he would often say to, to Melanchthon, his fellow reformer, when he needed times of comfort and he needed times of strength, he would simply say, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm together. Well, moments like this confrontation with Goliath had to have been in David's mind when he wrote Psalm 46. And so let me say with Luther this morning come brothers and sisters let us turn our attention to the word for strength and for comfort and certainly for us to get a picture of our Christ. I want to read just a few verses of context and then I'm going to pray again and ask for God's help and then we'll work our way primarily through the first 50 verses or so of 1 Samuel 17. But I want to start in 1 Samuel 16 to set the context for what's happening and I'm going to look at verse 7 and then verses 11 through 13 and The author of 1 Samuel writes this as he's carried along by the Spirit. Samuel has gone down and is in Bethlehem meeting with Jesse. And here's what it says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, now as we give our attention to your word, Father, may you help us. Father, we know from the scriptures that your words are profitable for us. They train us and instruct us in righteousness. Father, would we be trained and instructed in righteousness this morning? Father, I pray that would preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people, for the sake of the lost, but for the glory of your name. Father, may we see Jesus this morning high and lifted up. Father, and by beholding him, may we be made like him in every way. So, Father, now, would you sanctify us in the truth? Father, we know your word is truth. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you fear? Or what scares you? Some people are scared by heights. Some people are scared by snakes. I count myself among that. Spiders. Does public speaking scare you? No, there was a survey years ago that said the number one fear of Americans is public speaking while the number two fear of Americans is death. So Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian jokes, Americans would rather be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy at the funeral, (laughs) which seems really, really odd. But can you recall times when fear was starting to grip you, when you were afraid? I still remember this time, I was 13 years old, we went to a minor league baseball game in Zebulon, North Carolina, uh, and we're sitting there in the stands, and and during the game there was this group of older guys who were were drinking too much, and they started cussing at us because we wouldn't stand up and do the wave. Now there's times to probably yell at me, not doing the wave is not one of those times to yell at me. But unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, and so since we live in a fallen world, fear is a part of life. Which also begs the question, what kind of enemies do we face in this life? We're coming out of a time of a pandemic. We face death. We face disease. We face disasters. And on and on and on we could go. We have real enemies in this world, internal enemies, like our own sinful appetites of of anger and lust and greed and selfishness and, and the obsession of the approval of others. And then we also have external enemies in a fallen world, enemies that threaten us all the same, enemies like Pandemics and storms and earthquakes and cancer and viruses and on and on and on we could go. And behind it all, we face a serpent that the scriptures tell us would like nothing more than to sift us like wheat. So in a world of foes and fear, in a world of chaos and division and strife and darkness, where do we turn for true courage? And maybe even a better question is where should abiding faith be directed? And this text will help us see that true and lasting courage is shaped by faith, by a confidence in God who keeps his promises to sustain and deliver his people. Yes, sometimes in this life, but ultimately in the one to come. So my main idea this morning is this. We should be passionate and courageous for God because as Luther puts it in the song of mighty Is our God, we should be passionate and courageous for God because the right man is on our side. This right man who stands as our go-between, who stands between us and our enemies, both internal and external enemies. Now, here's the context of what's happening in 1 Samuel. I read a little bit of it. It is the days after the judges. And so Israel now has the king that they wanted, King Saul, who is described in the text as a strong and tall king. And yet in 1 Samuel 15... He has just disregarded and disobeyed God. So Samuel informs him that God is now going to reject him and give his kingdom, the text says, to somebody who is better than him. And now in chapter 16, which we just read, we are for the first time in the scriptures introduced to a man named David. More, we're introduced to a boy named David, an unlikely king from humble roots. Now he's unlikely because he is young. And this is this description. It's an odd description, right? He is, he's ruddy. He has beautiful eyes. He's handsome. And what the, the author is trying to invoke for us is he looks like a cute kid, not like a warrior king. However, how amazing are those words in 1 Samuel 16? God looks at the heart. And so he has Samuel anoint him as king, which is pivotal to the story this morning. Why well, I wanted to read it before we looked at first samuel 17 it means the spirit has now come upon david to empower him for service and more than that it indicates that david not saul is the actual true king and as soon as he is anointed an enemy arises against god's people and that brings us to chapter 17 and the first part of the text this morning what we see first in the text is the fear of israel in the face of god's enemies we see that in the first 16 verses of chapter 17 here's what it says now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and then skip down to verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. The Philistines are Israel's arch enemy. They despise and hate Israel. And more than that, they despise and hate Israel's God. So they have come out to come up against Israel, either hoping to just wipe them out, or as we'll see, hoping to make them slaves. Now, if you know the Old Testament... Like there should be warning bells going off. If you're my age, there should be like the the theme music from Jaws should be going off. That's a movie about a killer shark. Because what's happened here is, is a sign that Israel has not been obedient to God. Israel was supposed to drive these idolatrous, wicked Philistines out of the land, and God had promised them victory over the Philistines, and yet because of their disobedience, they had not driven them out, and now it may cost them their very lives. In fact, the whole narrative, and we should take note of that this morning for our own lives, the whole narrative will show us Israel does not trust in the promises of God as opposed to their unlikely king who absolutely trusts in the promises of God. Now, we are in the text introduced for the first time to this giant. We see this in verses 4 through 7, his description, and then we hear the kind of taunts he gives to Israel in verses 8 through 10. Here's what it says. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of that coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Here he is. His name is Goliath of Gath, right? Strong name. Caleb from Brazier's, really strong name. (laughs) But try as best you can to put yourself in the story as an Israelite soldier seeing this for the first time. Like this behemoth of a man swaggers out and begins to taunt you. Like we're in the Orlando area. Think like Shaquille O'Neal, only bigger than that. Think If you're an old WWF wrestling fan when it used to be good, think Andre the Giant. Think only bigger than that. How big is he? Well, most scholars would say he's nine feet nine inches tall. His armor alone weighs 125 pounds. Just think about that. His armor alone weighs more than a fifth grader. His spear weighs 15 pounds. He is a massive and strong individual, only slightly taller and stronger than Caleb. <laughs> Brother, I do not know any time I've ever said that people laugh. They shouldn't laugh at you like that, Pastor. <laughs> The sheer sight of his size and even just the enormity of his armor terrifies Israel. And it's interesting that so much attention is given to Goliath's armor. And in part, that's to show just how big he is. But there's actually a larger theological purpose for why the author is doing that. In verse 5, the literal rendering of coat of mail could be scale armor. The author wants the reader to recall Genesis chapter 3. He wants you to know Goliath looks like a massive serpent. And that once again, among God's people, in God's land, just like in Eden, a snake has come in as a threat. And here are the taunts, verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Here we see the theme of what is called representative combat or a champion stepping out from his side to fight on behalf of his people. You see the one fighting in the place of the many in a winner-take-all Challenge. This champion or this go between man would step out to fight for his side. He would stand between the enemy and his own people. And whoever killed the other one, all his people would partake in the victory and spoils of war, even if they didn't lift a finger themselves. But verse 11, we see the response of Israel. Here's what it said When Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When you really think about it, this is an incredibly sad verse. The Israelites, the people of God with all the promises of God are cowering like defeated wimps. And worst of all, King Saul, who himself is described in 1 Samuel 9 as a giant of a man, is greatly afraid. They have disregarded that God is on their side. They have disregarded that God has promised them victory over the Philistines. There is no faith. There is no courage. And if you didn't notice in the text, there's never even a mention of prayer in the face of this obstacle. One scholar points this out, dominating this text is not just the size of Goliath, but the size of unbelief among the people of God. Now skip down verse 16. The text says this, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. If you know your Bible, 40 days is significant. This vile man takes his stand against the armies of God. This recalls for the Israelites the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience and because of their lack of faith to take the land as they were promised that they would. And remember why the Israelites didn't take the land, because it parallels exactly what is happening here. Moses sends spies into the land, and 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, we cannot take the land. But do you remember why they said they could not take the land? They said this, because they are giants, and we are grasshoppers in their sight. In so many ways, Israel, the people of God, are back in the wilderness. Again, they fail to be obedient. Again, they fail to believe in the promises of God. And maybe most importantly, they fail to believe that God is actually with them. Which leads to the second part of the text. We see the fear of Israel, but we also see the faith of David. Look at verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring them some token from me. Here we see Jesse tell his son David, take some bread and what I want to imagine is a, a tin cheese queso down to his brothers in the army to see how they're doing. And that's what's happening. They go to check and see how the brothers are doing. How is the potential battle going? And I'm going to skip down to verse 23 because verse 23 is really the turning point in the entire story. And here's what it said. As he talked with them, as David talked with his brothers, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Once again, here comes the giant to to taunt and to mock and to challenge Israel, but something is different this time. This time, David hears him. This time, the anointed one of God hears this blasphemer speak. And look what the text says happens. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and prayed. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. The men of Israel see the giant and they run away from him. They They flee. Even at the sight of, of of this Goliath, and it is such a desperate situation that Saul offers the world to anyone who can take down the giant. I mean, if you take him down, you get money, you get the princes, you get no, a princess, you get no more taxes. It sounds really good as my taxes are starting to ro- roll in from 2021. I mean, who wouldn't take him up on this? The issue is though they must be thinking, what good is a reward if I'm six feet under? Though it's clear in the text, David is different. As he hears Goliath defy and belittle God, as he hears Goliath defy and belittle God's people, David is, he's ticked off. Look what he says in verse 26. David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David understands that this challenge is not just against Israel. This challenge is against Israel's God, and he will not stand for it. Essentially, in verse 26, David is saying, have you lost your mind? Who do you think you are to defy God? David has rightly sized up that this is not just a physical battle. This is a theological one. The glory and the honor and the reputation of Yahweh, Israel's God, is at stake. Just think about that by way of application this morning. And we'll consider it more in a minute. But whether you're in this room and you're a child, you're a teenager, young adult, adult, more seasoned adult. David is more concerned with the reputation of God than he is his own safety. David is certainly more concerned with the glory of God than he is his own comfort. I'm curious if that can be said of of us this morning that we possess such strong desire for the glory of God, then that's more important to us than our own comfort. Now, skip down verse 31. Saul hears about what's going on. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with this Philistine. It's interesting, Saul calls for David after he hears what David has said to his brothers and other, other uh, soldiers around, and isn't this a sad scene? Again, if you kind of take a step back to, to see what's going on in the text, it's really sad if you contemplate it for a second. The, the runt, the youth, the boy is saying to the tall and muscular king, do not lose heart, I will go out and fight for Israel. Saul responds to him, verse 33, Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul initially rejects David's offer, and you can kind of imagine how that went, right? Like, David, thanks for bringing the bread and the queso, but you can't be serious. Like, you're a boy, and he is a warrior. However, David is not deterred. David presses him. I love these verses. David said to Saul, verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and the uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David is confident, right? David is confident because he has defeated wild animals before to protect his sheep. And now he, as the anointed king, will protect his new flock, the people of Israel. He's confident and he's courageous because of his faith in the fact that God will defend his own honor. He believes that God will make Goliath's fate the same as the lions and the bears. In David's mind, As Goliath began to disgrace and blaspheme God, as as Goliath mocked the very one who had created him, he became like one of these wild animals who threatened the flock. And now David, in a sense, a new Adam will do what Adam was supposed to do in the garden. He will take dominion over the wild animal who threatens his people. David is confident because he serves a God who has zeal for his own name, who is much more powerful than any giant can be. Which leads to the final section. We have seen the the fear of Israel. We have seen the faith of David. And now we're going to see the fate of Goliath. Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David doesn't want the armor. This is a sign that David does not intend to go into battle with earthly weapons. He intends to go to battle with weapons of faith. Instead, he's going out like a shepherd to protect his sheep. He goes out like a shepherd to tame the wild animal by taking five stones. Most scholars say these stones would have been about the size of a tennis ball. In fact, one Old Testament scholar, speaking of these verses, says this, Goliath has committed blasphemy, a capital crime. And now David is going out to stone him to death. Now the one-on-one duel is on, right? It's, this is Ali Frazier, Tyson Holyfield, Rocky versus Drago, the best of the Rockies. Here now the champion, I mean, we beat the Soviet Union. It's definitely the best of the Rockies. Here now the champion's fate will be the fate of his people. And it's one of those clear showdowns of the righteous versus the wicked, right? David versus Goliath, the one who's taunting and mocking Israel. Watch movies, Gladiator versus Caesar, Allies versus Germany. Anyone against Tom Brady, I guess. <laughs> but more importantly for our purposes this morning, this is not just about mono a e mono combat. Again, there's a theological point at stake. One dressed like a snake who defies God. One dressed like a snake who wields death against God's people, just like the serpent in Eden. And just as Adam was to rule over the beasts of the field, David now steps out into the field to exercise dominion over this beast. The fight begins, verse 41. The Philistine moved forward, came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. I mean, the shield bearer had one job. But he wasn't very good at that job. Goliath believes, and you see this, he believes that David is unfit for the challenge. Again, he thinks David is a cute kid, and so he starts to trash talk him. He ultimately curses David by his false gods. Here's what he says, verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath basically ends his taunts telling David, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to disgrace you as I do it. I'm going to do it by the power of my gods. And again, I love David. I love his response. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David is not intimidated by his size. David is not intimidated by his weapons. He reminds Goliath, you have mocked God, and that will not go on forever. David's response draws the stark uh, stark contrast between their strategies. Goliath relies on his might. Goliath relies on his weapons. David relies on the Lord of hosts. Again, it looks like a mismatch, but David knows All power in in heaven and on earth belongs to God. All David sees in front of him is is a mortal, blasphemous man in the face of an all-powerful, immortal God. In some sense, the real underdog in the story is Goliath. In fact, David is so confident that he calls his shot. Look at verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead body of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. David is saying this is what's about to happen. And what's about to happen will be done so that the world knows Israel's God is mighty to save. Even in the face of of seemingly insurmountable odds, he saves, and what is so important for our purposes this morning, he saves in ways the world would not assume he would save. At every turn, the author has gone to great lengths to show the might and invulnerability of Goliath compared to the weakness of David, and yet what happens for all of the bluster? It's a first-round knockout. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David for all the anticipation, for all the mouthing of the giant, it doesn't last very long. David doesn't run from Goliath like the Israelites, uh, Israelites, he runs towards him. He launches that tennis ball-sized stone into his face, hits him in the head with enormous force and clear accuracy, and yet it's not over. David piles on in victory. Look at verse 51. David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. Goliath is severely wounded. He goes down after taking this stone to his head and David walks over, takes the giant's own weapon, uses it against him as now a man dressed like a serpent dies from a head wound. Genesis 3.15, his head is crushed. The runt has given the largest man in history a fatal blow. And just as God does not judge by appearance, we too, who do not wear war against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers, must never judge our enemies by their power, by their size, by their strength, or by their cunning. David's crushing of the enemy's head head leads to the rout of the Philistines. The army comes in and then plunders the goods of the Philistines. David's people now share in victory. They get the plunder even though they had not earned the victory themselves as they experienced deliverance by the hand of this unexpected champion. Oh, brothers and sisters, our God is mighty to save. So three applications this morning. Number one, we need to possess courageous faith. Possess courageous faith. We should have courageous faith in our evangelism, in our prayer, in our giving, in our serving. Courageous faith rather than fear, not because we are big, but because we serve an all-powerful God. God has solved our biggest problems, that being sin and death. And so now we can, by the power of the Spirit that indwells us, face our lesser enemies, ones of of personal sin and unseen powers. We need, need to this morning embrace the right kind of fear, fear of God and not fear of man. We need to possess the right kind of courage and absolute trust that even in our weaknesses, God will accomplish his purposes through his People, not because of our skill, but because of our faithfulness to the task he's given us. Second application, pursue pursue humble zeal for God. We must have zeal for God marked by humility. Humble because we didn't accomplish it ourselves, but zealous because he's worthy of all that we can give him. He has redeemed us at great cost how if that is true if he has redeemed us at great cost how in the world can we be cold towards him cold towards his ways cold towards his people cold towards the loss? if that indeed is true and we understand what he has paid for us we will love him with a humble zeal david was willing as i said before to risk his comfort even his life for the glory of god what will that look like for us how will that impact our daily lives? How will that impact our prayer life? How will that impact our evangelism? How will that impact, impact our checkbook and our time and our loves? How will that impact our social media? You know, a primary way we can pursue humble zeal for God is by humble evangelism. This is where discipleship and things like church planting that I'm involved with, this is where they start with evangelism. You know, it's so true, the statement that we, we commend what we cherish, we, we talk about what we treasure, we talk about the things that we love, that's so true. My parents have 14 grandkids. They cannot help but show you pictures of their grandkids, because they love them. And we have a 20-month-old who's the best of the 14. <laughs> I mean, you know, brothers and sisters, we usually have trouble not telling people about our favorite Netflix show. I think that begs the question this morning by what we talk about in our daily lives, by what we put on social media. Will people know that we love and treasure and cherish the Lord or so many other things? Final application, ponder his forgiveness for our failures. Finally, this text should remind us there is forgiveness for our failures because the victory is somebody else's. The sort of love and affection, that kind of forgiveness made possible by our great God, should make us grace filled, humble, passionate people for His glory. We must remember this those who have been forgiven little, forgive little, but those who have been forgiven much, love much. And we have been forgiven. See, that's the big problem. We all fail, we all fall short of the glory of God. And though there are glimpses in, in this text of Genesis 3:15, the fulfillment of one who would come not just to defeat temporary enemies but take on ultimate enemies would have to wait. Because the problem is David himself is a sinner. And since he's a sinner, his victories are only momentary. And we're left waiting for a greater son of David who would bring about ultimate victory and deliverance from our greatest enemies, and yet. All of David's sons sin and fail and die, and the hope of one who would come to to turn back sin and to turn back death lies dead in Jerusalem tombs. Until, brothers and sisters, we again return to Bethlehem and to the birth of another unlikely warrior king, another go-between man who will ultimately save his people you see, there will be another in the line of Jesse who will be baptized. He will be anointed. The spirit will descend upon him. And similar to David, he will immediately go out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to make war with the serpent from Eden. He goes out to tame the beast and to take on the blasphemous enemy of God. There will be another king who by courageous faith will trust in the promises of God that God would deliver him from the hand of the enemy. The one the New Testament tells us who would cry with loud cries to the one who was able to save him from certain death. There will be another champion whose fate will be the fate of his people. The one who, get this, listen to this, the New Testament tells us will plunder the strong man's house and his goods. And how did he do it? How did he accomplish ultimate salvation and deliverance for God's people? He did it by becoming our go-between man. The one who would stand in the place of the many. And we are on the sidelines. We are like the Israelite soldiers. We need another son of Jesse to stand between us and our enemies, to stand between us and sin, to stand between us and death, to stand between us and the serpent himself, Satan. And at the cross, he defeats our greatest enemies. He vanquishes our foe. Listen to this. He does it by turning our foe's own weapons against him. Because in that moment, he becomes our sin bearer, the sinless one takes our shame. He takes our guilt. He takes our penalty. As hour after hour, the judgment of God due sin touches down upon him at Golgotha. And what he's doing in that moment is he's taking our enemy's own weapons away from him weapons of accusation and death for sin, he is delivering a fatal head wound to the serpent. As John tells us in Revelation, now the accuser of our brothers who accuses them night and day has been thrown down. At the cross, R.G. Lee, a preacher from years gone by, reminds us, at the cross, he became for us all that God must judge so that we by faith in him might become all that God cannot He is our go-between man. He is the promised one of Genesis 3. He is the rod of Jesse. He is Jesus of Nazareth, rightful heir to the throne of David, the even greater shepherd of the sheep because he did not just risk his life for his people. He laid it down. And yet we know his sacrifice is good. We know that his sacrifice is accepted. We know that his kingdom will last forever because he, like David, would need a tomb, but he would need his for three days only. Friends, and in particular, if there's anybody here who may not follow Jesus, I just want to speak very clearly to you this morning, whether you know it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, all of us are sinners who are not right with God. But the greatest news in all the world is that God has made a way for us to be right with him, to be saved, and it is through a go-between man. Listen to me, on the final day, when everything that we have done is brought into the tribunal of God. And we face judgment for what we've done. There will be two possible ways we face that judgment. We will either face it with a go-between between man named Jesus on our side, or we will face it on our own, and we will be swept away. Jesus stands ready to become your refuge and strong tower from the judgment to come if only you will surrender your life to him. And I know that there are pastors and leaders here who would love to talk with you about what it looks like to turn to our go-between-man in repentance and faith. And Christian, this text should remind us if we were in Christ, we now have the Spirit. We are now like the Israelites, bold and advancing in the, in the battle. We move forward with courageous faith, humble zeal, because our champion has won, and he is worthy of all we can give him. We go forward cherishing him and with confidence, because even when we fail, for every time I have doubted, for every time I have lacked courage to share the gospel with somebody, for every time I have cowered, Jesus bore the penalty for that sin in his own body on the tree. We who have been forgiven much love much, and he paid it all. You know, all those years ago when I was at that minor league baseball game and those guys were cussing at me for not doing the wave, I was scared initially. And then I just remember sitting right next to me was my uncle who weighed 260 pounds and could bench press 500 pounds. And as soon as he stood up, they sat down. <laughs> oh, brothers and sisters, in a much greater way. To go forward with courageous faith, no matter, matter what we face in this life, because Paul is very clear to the church at Rome, we are more than conquerors, but listen to this, here is why we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors because of him who has loved us. Viruses and death, even sin, will not have the last word for you if you are in Christ because our future is connected to our go-between man. Our go-between man is doing just fine. He is seated at the Father's right hand, poised for what he is going to do next. After all, Luther reminds us in that song, "The Mighty Fortress is Our God, that in no way are we underdogs because the right man is on our side. In fact, it's said here, the Lord of hosts is with us. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear that some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Others collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Father, in a world of enemies, may we continually pray, Lord, I believe. Would you please help my unbelief? Father, we are thankful for Jesus. Father, may may we, by beholding him, even now as we celebrate the new life he gives in baptism, Father, by beholding what Jesus is doing in us and in others in this congregation, Father, we be made like Jesus in every way. Father, bless this church family. I pray that you would use them in mighty ways in the days ahead. Thank you for your word. Again, that it trains and instructs us in righteousness. May we be trained today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.